Well, grace and peace to you, my friends. Like that, like Tommy said earlier, this is the start of spring break for many of our kids, which is always a fun time. And I know this will come as very shocking news to you. Um, but when I was in school, I was a very driven student. Yes, I know. Shocking, right? Um, and how I, how I made it through all my years of school without an ulcer is really a medical mystery. They should probably study my stomach lining for like inspiration, right? But anyway, so when spring break rolled around, for me, it was not like I was not excited about getting to sleep in or going on a trip or what I was most excited about for spring break as a kid was that there were no deadlines, right? Like nothing looming over your head. Like for a brief moment, there was respite. There was like, oh, there's just a little room to breathe from all those impending deadlines, from all the ridiculous classes I was taking, like the papers do and the projects and the group work to slog through because you know how much I love that. And it is a crying shame that adults do not get spring break. Can I get an amen? amen. And amen. Thank you. Because we have deadlines too, don't we? Like there's work projects and there's projects around the house and there's stuff with family and whatever. And deadlines always seem to be looming. And the closer the deadline gets, the more intense the experience, right? Like emotions can get kind of rattled, anger flares, tears might come more easily. Well, this Tuesday, coming up in like what, two days? Oh, two days, okay. Um, I have to turn in my final edits for my very first book coming out in October. And so thank you. I'm sick of the book at this point. I'm so sick of it. I've read it like eight times. I'm like, this is junk, whatever. Because um, I'm so tired of it. But anyway, I have to turn in all of my edits by Tuesday. And I'm reading through it like every day, going through it, like fixing that, tweaking that, whatever. And um, so like the, the urgency, I'm feeling the deadline a little bit, you know. And there's been a little <clears throat> stress. And so uh, the other night, Tommy told me, <laughs> he told me, he gave me this small, small pile of books. And he said, Stephanie, I need you to sort through these books hoping against hope that I would let him throw away at least one. <laughs> Foolish man that he is. <laughs> um, and I looked at the bookshelf, and I just, <clears throat> I burst into tears. Um, bookshelves are not worthy of tears, but when we feel the pressure of, like, deadlines and the weight of stuff impending and the intensity, it gets ratcheted up, and the urgency leaks into every part of our lives, Right? Now, in our text today, we are going to feel some of that urgency, that intensity is going to go up click by click as Jesus continues the journey to the cross. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 13. Now, as you're, as you're turning there, in this previous chapter, in chapter 12, Jesus has been coming at his followers really hard as he senses the impending events, like the cross is getting closer and closer and the shadow of that cross is looming and so he begins to warn them, warn and comfort, warn and comfort. He, he warns them against hypocrisy in this really strong language. But then he calls them to courage in the face of the persecution that's coming. And then calls them to not win at the wrong things, a.k.a. storing up stuff here, but, and then lose at what matters, and then calls them to trust God's provision. He warns them to be watchful and use the time wisely and then he calls out their inability to interpret the times correctly. You see, they just aren't seeing and perceiving what God is up to. And so there are these really hard words. All of chapter 12 are these really hard words of instruction, of judgment, of challenge, kind of interwoven with comfort. But all of it is pushing the followers of Jesus to repentance, turning from empty paths and turning towards God in faithful obedience. Okay? 
So we are going to arrive at our text today, chapter 13, verse 1, kind of out of breath, panting with the exhaustion and feeling the urgency of Jesus pushing us forward, okay? He wants us to sense the urgency and that pressing need to respond to his call to repent, to follow him and to live into this inbreaking kingdom of God. So we're going to read this passage in two chunks, and I'm going to say up front, this is a strange text. So stick with me, and we're going to dig in it together, and I feel like the Lord does have a good word for us today. So let's read, starting in verse 1. At that very time, there were some present who had told them all about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. He said, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they are worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that got weird, right? So Jesus has been talking about the signs of God's kingdom breaking in and calling people to pay attention, pay attention to the signs of God breaking in. And essentially, this group of people runs up to Jesus with what is the first century equivalent of a newspaper. And he says, hey, hey, listen, look at these tragedies. This must be a sign, right? And what happened to them, not to us, so they must be the real sinners, and we have survived these random tragedies, thus we are good, we are extra righteous. Whoo, we're good. Now, there have been uh, many occasions where well-meaning people, just one second, um, well-meaning people have done this to Tommy and I as well. So we preach about the kingdom of God a lot, about the kingdom of God breaking in and, and calling people to pay attention to what God is doing, and then sure enough, we get tagged in some weird story on social media about the latest blood moon, right? The end is near! Like, really? We had this last month. We had a blood moon last month, right? Or some horrific natural disaster occurs, and without fail, someone will point to us a few proof texts that prove that this is it. The end is finally come. Did you know? Did you know, Pastor? We are always looking for the signs, but sometimes perhaps for the wrong reasons. Now, when I was a sophomore in college, um, I was a sophomore in college when Hurricane Katrina ravaged New Orleans. Do you remember that? Now, none of us would truly know how bad it was for a really long time. But without missing a beat, people in my circle, Christian leaders that were in my life at the time, were trying to name the why. Why did this happen? Well, New Orleans is just a snarling pit of sin. I mean, hello, Mardi Gras, right? Or one leader, and I am not, I wish I was making this up, I am not. Or one leader went so far as to show, um, he somehow got an aerial view of the damage that had been wrought in the city. And with a digital pen, he had demonstrated how the damage itself was shaped like an unborn baby. And so the conclusion was that the hurricane was a punishment for abortion. Now, I am not a fan of the excess and indulgence of Mardi Gras. And I deeply grieve for unborn lives lost and lives forever altered by abortion. But something is amiss in those explanations. Something that, that reeks of self-righteousness and arrogance and even vindictiveness. You see, the reality is we want the why because it gives us an illusion of control. 
Because if I know the why, I can avoid that thing. I can control my fate. But sometimes, and again, this is nothing we would ever say aloud, right? But when we see a place like known for unchrist-like behavior suffer, we feel kind of a sense of, I don't know, righteousness. Like, I'm a survivor. Thus, I am not a guilty sinner like those people. I am protected by my righteousness. And by clinging to those whys, those explanations, we try to manage the fear. We try to control our vulnerability. We try to somehow push down the reality of our own mortality and fragility. Because if we can control all these external factors, maybe this fear will dissipate. If we can somehow assure ourselves that we're safe because we're just so very good and righteous and holy, and thus we are protected in a holy bubble. Did you not know that? And then we don't have to face the reality of human frailty. And what I want Jesus to say is, no, of course not. Now, come here and let me give you a hug because that's just really hard news. Come on, right here, right here, right? And I want Jesus to comfort us in this time. But that is not what happens in the text. He does correct them, and this whole false idea of good stuff only happens to good people and bad stuff only happens to bad people, he totally debunks that. And he says, no, these people did not suffer because they were worse sinners than you, and by implication, you did not escape because you are oh so very righteous. This tragedy is not some moral quandary to solve. Rather, it is a symptom of the disorder and the chaos at work in creation, right? So stop with this nonsense. But then Jesus takes this hard left turn. He says, but unless you repent, you will perish just like they did. It's not that Jesus doesn't see their fear or sense their vulnerability or their fragility. He sees their fear with total clarity. He sees their need to control it and to manage it and to justify themselves as a weapon against the chaos. And he pokes right there in that tender spot demanding that they pay attention to the pain for just a second. He says, are, are you afraid? Turning to control and justification and self-righteousness to convince yourself that you're safe. Are you mired in fear? Do you want to know the way out? The way out is unexpected. It's not at all what you think. The way out of fear is repentance. Turn, turn, Now, we often almost always talk about repentance as turning away from the bad stuff, right? Turning away from what's sinful, what's contrary to God's way. But repentance is also not just turning away, but it's turning towards something, toward God's good intentions for us. So we turn away from control and we turn towards submission and obedience. We turn away from self-righteousness and that lie that we are protected by our goodness and our self-sufficiency, and we turn toward humble acknowledgement of our need for a Savior. We turn away from fear management and turn toward a radical trust in God. Repentance is the call to turn away from death and turn toward God's invitation to life, life of the kingdom that begins now. Well, Jesus isn't done, so let's keep going. Verse 6. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, 
For three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, this is not the first appearance of figs or barren trees in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 3, in one of my favorite passages, because it's just so crazy, John the Baptist is preaching this really fiery sermon to all the people that are coming down to the river to be baptized. You remember that story? They're coming down to be baptized. Instead of being like, oh, yay, crowds, let me preach something they'll love to hear. Instead, he goes, you brood of vipers. He's the best preacher. He truly is. He doesn't pull any punches. And he says to them in chapter 3, John said to the crowd that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee of the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourself, oh, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, Can you imagine, picture this guy, camel skin, wild hair, eyes ablaze. I do not imagine a calm, cool, and collected sermon. I just don't. I imagine rather a half-yelling declaration. Bear fruit! That's what you were made for! So where is it? Don't think because of some special status that you're exempt. Trees that don't bear fruit get chopped down. And if he had an axe on hand, I absolutely imagine him swinging an axe around just for effect. And he, frankly, he's the last guy I would give an axe to. But he is asking a valid question of the people of God that parallels this parable. He says, where's the fruit, sisters and brothers? Why the barren branches? Now, when Tommy and I first got married, he had one of those, um, one of those jobs. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you're first married, you're young, you're poor, and you'll do whatever you can just to pay the bills kind of jobs. That's what he was doing. And so he was gone all the time, and I was so lonely. And so naturally, we got a beagle, of course, because that's what you do, right? And there was this huge dog park that wasn't very far from us, and I would take her up there. There was a little puppy self. She was so cute, and her ears were so long. And we would go and walk around this park. And in my head, I was imagining this, like, leisurely, companionable walk with my devoted dog, right? Except I did not walk around. I uh, basically just followed Penelope the entire time because from the second I let her off the leash she was on the hunt she was like a bloodhound on a cold case okay she was sniffing constantly her nose was always to the ground following whatever it was and every once in a while she would stand up and go lift up her paw and go oh right it was so cute it was like magazine worthy right it was so adorable and my reflective calm existential walk was not to be and I was annoyed Until I realized something. A beagle has just got a beagle. She's got a sniff. She's got a prowl. She's got a search. And let you know with a soulful howl when she's found something of interest. She was doing exactly what she was made to do. A beagle, a beagle's just got a beagle, right? Just like a rose has got a bloom. The sun has to rise and set. It's just doing what it was made to do. The tide rolls in and rolls back out in obedience to the moon because that's what it was made to do. And a beagle, 
is never more truly living into its created purpose than when its nose is to the ground. And so too we are never more human, never more living into our created purpose than when we are bearing fruit to nourish the world. Fruit of a life lived in obedience to God and service to others. Fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruit that is for our good, but also for the good of the world. Bearing fruit, it's what we're made to do. And so back in Luke 13, Jesus tells this parable of divine frustration. Why the frustration? Because the tree isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It's not living into its divinely ordained purpose. A tree that does not bear fruit is unhealthy and is of no use to anyone. It has no power to nourish anyone. And so for a minute, we get these images of wild-eyed John the Baptist swinging that axe. Comes back to our minds. No fruit? Shrub it down. Clear the ground. Make room for something else. But then, right when the axe is about to swing and just strike at the trunk of that fruitless fig, the gardener says, wait! It's like this dramatic movie scene, a last-second stay of execution. The intercessor throwing herself between the perpetrator and the axe. Wait! Let me, let me prune it just a little bit more. Let me, I don't know, dig around the soil a little bit. Let me work in the manure just, just a little bit more time. Just a little bit more. Children tend to make messes, as I'm sure most of you are aware. And you're probably of the same mindset as me. If you made the mess, you clean it up. That's right, you know. So I stand at the door of my daughter's room, and I issue orders like a drill instructor, insisting that my demands be met, a room in order ASAP. And then I see her face. overwhelmed by the chaos around her. Chaos that she has caused, yes, but to her, it seems so big, so beyond her ability to remedy. And so often, what do I do? I crawl down on the floor with her, and we face the chaos together. And in this parable, the great mystery is that God is somehow both the vineyard owner demanding fruit and yet also the gardener that stays the axe, that crawls down into the dirt, into the manure, to bring that lifeless fig back into a life-giving existence. God in Christ comes to us and partners with us, doing the heavy lifting, no doubt, but inviting us into partnership of taming the chaos in and around us. And it begins with repentance turning away from fear and rebellion and self-righteousness and turning to Jesus. Lord, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And it is repentance that leads us to life, kingdom of God life starting now. No doubt, repentance is painful. Seeing ourselves clearly and honestly is painful, but oh, beloved, it is the greatest of mercies. It is, that is the gift of Lent. 
where we can pause and we can look at ourselves and we can get truly honest about the state of things, the the self-protective postures that we take to shut ourselves off from God and others, the wounds that we guard and protect but refuse to offer up for healing, the fear that permeates every cell, the control we seek, the self-righteousness that we claim as a shield. Now we are invited to turn. Turn away from the habits and the practices and the addictions and the coping mechanisms and the self-righteousness, all of which leads to death right now. And turn toward Christ the faithful gardener who stays the axe and crawls down with us to work the soil and to prune and to dig and mix in the manure. Like, it is not pretty. It stinks. But it's the only way to life. Life that is both for our good and for the good of the world. Now, when we are hear this text, our immediate response is to reflect on ourselves And that is very, very much an appropriate and necessary response. Like, we must tend to our own souls, do we not? Because nobody else can do that task on our behalf. Which direction are you faced? Which direction am I faced? Am I turning towards Jesus or am I turning away? Which direction am I headed? But Jesus intended this parable to be heard by a group. In the entirety of scripture, the metaphor of the vine and the fig tree is never about a person. It is always about a people. And so the ultimate question of this parable for us today is not, are you bearing fruit worthy of repentance? Although I hope we are. But are we? This local body of Christ bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Are we leaning into Christ, allowing him to work the soil of our congregation for our good as a body and for the nourishment of this community? Or are we a beagle with no sniff, a rose with no bloom, a sun that gives no light? It is only when we are continually turning away as a people from sin and from selfishness, from pride and self-preservation, from self-righteousness, and instead turning to God, to his call to forgive, to show mercy, to be agents of peace, not discord, to welcome instead of exclude. Then we are living into who we were made to be. The holier we become through the pruning, purifying work of Jesus, the more human we become together. You see, we right now live in the weight of Christ. See, the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And it is a kindness. It is not a punishment from some divine bully. Do not buy in to that false image, okay? Do not buy into that, oh, religious people are all about condemnation and judgment and God's doling out punishment. No, that is a sorry excuse and an entirely inaccurate portrayal of God's heart toward us. His call to repentance, to turn away from death, a death marked by existence, and turning toward God's loving loving intentions toward us, it is a mercy because it is for our good, for our healing, and for the nourishment of God the world. Now this text leaves us in a bit of suspense. So the gardener says, wait, hold the axe. And then the curtain drops. We don't know what happens. Does the fig tree bear fruit? 
Or does it persist in unfruitfulness and get chopped down? We don't know exactly. But if you read the rest of Luke 13, perhaps we get a clue. Because after that parable, Jesus comes to a woman. She's been bent over in pain for 18 years. And with a word, Jesus sets her free. And then he says, there was once a tiny little seed that seemed like nothing at all. And it took root and it grew into a tree that provided shelter for all sorts of birds. And then a speck of yeast infiltrates this mountain of dough, causing it to rise into this great loaf of bread that nourishes a crowd. You see, following that pitiful barren fig tree story, we are given these stories of God's long-awaited restoration, of generous abundance, of flourishing that is life-giving to others. And so perhaps that barren fig tree did respond to the patient, menial, uncomfortable work of the gardener. Perhaps it did repent. It turned away from death and turned toward the life-giving hands of Christ. Perhaps it grew into a fruitful plant, fulfilling its purpose by producing nourishment for the world. And that's what I want for us, church. I want us to be who we were made to be, a fruitful tree so deeply rooted in Christ that we bear nourishing fruit for our community. I want us to turn away from an orientation towards fear and control and self-righteousness and self-protection and instead turn towards Jesus. You and me and we must repent. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it is repentance that leads us to life. Amen. Amen. Father God, we come before you today um, humbled by this challenging text. And Lord, we recognize that your call to repentance is not a bully move. It is an act of divine kindness. As you call us to turn away from that which leads to death and call us forward into life, would you help us, Lord, to have eyes to see what you are doing? And as a congregation, Lord, would you help us to turn away from the habits and the practices and the, the self-focus that, that makes us a barren fruit tree and instead empower us and enable us and call us forward by your spirit into a life of abundance, a life of obedience, a life of sacrifice and trust that we might bear fruit both for our good and for the nourishment of the world. Lord, thank you that you do not leave us a barren tree but rather you get down in the soil and you work for our good. Would you help us to be responsive to your hand? In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Would you stand this morning to receive the benediction? Oh, beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place turning away from that which leads to death and turn with all your heart to Jesus, and allow his hand to work in you and through you, that we might bear fruit for the world. Go in action and go in peace. Amen. You are dismissed.